Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue our series now on the second half of American history with podcast number eight. In podcast seven, we examined the mistrust of giant corporations as American when America was beginning in our later industrial age now to be able to put together corporations of massive size and scale to produce eventually thousands and hundreds of thousands of common products that Americans would take for granted as always being available to them. We looked at the labor problems in the labor market with child labor and poverty and pollution running rampant. We looked at the way crime skyrocketed and the way the cities did everything they could to try to minimize that, explored the gospel of wealth theory, and then eventually discussed city development with the application of steel and how steel as well as, of course, with Otis's invention of the elevator, would eventually allow America to build buildings that truly looked like they scraped the sky, the skyscraper. So in this eighth podcast, we're going to be looking at, as we wrap up industrialism in America, or this little snapshot of it, by looking at a real-world steel application, where steel, if it wasn't for steel, we would never have this iconic landmark in the United States. And then we're going to switch gears and head out west to see how Americans were faring there, away from the larger cities on the East Coast. So in terms of this real-world steel application, this, this icon that was given to us truly was a gift But it was a gift that came in 350 different pieces, weighing over 60,000 pounds, made of copper, but would cost thousands of dollars to assemble. And it was money that the United States government simply did not have in 1876. This gift from France, of course, that being Lady Liberty herself, in honor of the 100th anniversary of our independence back in 1776, we were still only 11 years out of the end of the American Civil War. The federal government, again, just did not have the funds. And it literally the gift initially was an embarrassment to the United States because we, of course, had to accept it. But we didn't know how to put it together. We did. There was no uh, directions for the internal guts of Lady Liberty herself and how to assemble these 350 different pieces of copper that eventually would give us that world-famous Statue of Liberty. So again, it was a gift from France to the United States in honor of the 100th birthday of our Declaration of Independence. The statue, before we even began to assemble it, would need a 150-foot solid concrete pedestal the largest one devised in the world up to that time. Yes, we would create it as we would pour countless tons of concrete into this 150-foot pedestal itself to support Lady Liberty. 
I will say this to my listeners. If you ever come across the news or on social media that the Statue of Liberty needs to be removed and the, to, and so that the pedestal can be rebuilt, I'm telling you right now, volunteer to help them take Liberty, Lady Liberty off that pedestal and volunteer to help break down that old concrete pedestal. Why? Because there will be a treasure trove inside as almost all of the men that worked to put that pedestal together through silver and gold dollars in the wet concrete as a way of saying good luck and a way of proving that they were actually there to put this pedestal together. We can only imagine, depending upon the conditions of those coins, what they would be worth today. Lady Liberty, once we were able to apply the steel into the framework to hang those pieces of copper all around the facade, of, making the facade around that steel, when it was finally done, Lady Liberty's feet would be and are 32 times that of a human being. Yes, she actually takes an 839 size shoe, if only she wore them. Her smallest fingernail was weighs in at no less than three and a half pounds. So where then did the United States get this money to put Lady Liberty together? Well, the federal government never did come up with the money. So the presidential administration shipped it out of the Potomac region to get it out of there and was literally looking for a home somewhere up the American uh, Atlantic seacoast when it finally sailed into New York City and the word and the story came out about what was on this barge and what needed to be done with it but didn't have the money, one man would actually take it upon himself to organize what was then the largest fundraiser in North America, a man that we commonly know only by his last name, Pulitzer, with the Pulitzer Prize, named after Joseph Pulitzer. He created and organized the largest fundraiser to gather the funds to build that concrete base and then assemble that steel structure and hang the, the copper facade pieces, again, 350 of them, to give them, to give America the Statue of Liberty that is so famous around the world today. To the point that by the 2020s or even up to the 21st century, one third of Americans can trace the roots that came actually from ancestors that came past that statue. So again, that is just a quick discussion of a real world steel application about one of America's most iconic landmarks. Now, as we then shift gears now and we take off from these big cities on the East Coast, and of course, as well as Chicago and cities on the West Coast, we're going to be looking at now the interior of the United States and how the United States attempted to, as we call it, colonizing the West. In this discussion, I'm looking at the years between 1865 and 1890, because west of the Appalachian Mountains, there were three million acres of land for anyone who could conquer it. Now, again, I understand that is the American perspective of what was out there. We all know, clearly know, that that land was not 100% free and available. There weren't massive real estate signs saying for sale or auction. The land was occupied. We know that. We know that by they were occupied by Native Americans, some of those tribes dating back to their ancestral roots back to the last ice age. No, it was not free and clear. 
But with the advancement of American weaponry and technology, the land was going to become ours one way or another. I am not about to rewrite history and try it in any way to exonerate the actions of the Americans, but I'm not going to gloss over it either. The fact of the matter is, America on the East Coast, we were getting crowded. We were living beyond elbow to elbow. We had to get Americans to want to go west of the Appalachian in order to be able to grow our entire continent, the North American continent that was flying under the American flag. The goal, therefore, would be to try to find a means to get people across the Mississippi River and beyond. And that would be the reason for the establishment of the creation of what became known as the Transcontinental Railroad. The Transcontinental Railroad would start out at the Missouri River, work its way, excuse me, at the Mississippi River, working its way west to eventually the Iowa-Nebraska line, where the two major rail lines in the United States at that time would then meet at some central point. Please know, just to back up, we were able to navigate all of the eastern states, east of the Mississippi River, without this railroad. What's going on that suddenly Americans suddenly want to take the train now? What's up with that? Well, two things. First off, when Americans became Americans in 1776, we only had the 13 colonies, and we had been colonizing those eventual future states for centuries by the time America got the idea of independence. Secondly, the railroad wasn't available. So there was no means by wishing that we could travel from point A to point B on any other means other than the human being's own two feet or on the back of an animal or an animal pulling some kind of cart or wagon. But time was changed. Times have changed now. Technology, the effects of the industrial and transportation revolutions was making travel now far faster and far safer than it was before. Just as for many people around the world, especially Americans, space is our what we call the final frontier to a lot of people. But it's scary. It's dangerous. This, folks, was the West to Americans in the East back in the middle of the 1800s. What's out there? Sure, Lewis and Clark went out there back in 1803 to 1805. We got an idea of what is in the north central part of the United States all the way to the Pacific Ocean. But what else is out there? That's a lot of land to be navigating. Secondly, the rivers were themselves obstacles. Please note today, we humans and our in second and first world countries, we think nothing of a river system. A river doesn't bother us at all. It's amazing when I ask students, I mean, it's not, it's just emblematic of the world we live in, or indicative, I should say. But when I ask students, how many of them on their way to co the college class today, on the way to class, how many of them actually drove over a river? They have to think about it. Yeah, I, I think there's a creek near me that I drove over or, you know, the Cuyahoga River, if they're coming from the west side to the east side or vice versa. In Chicago, it's well, what part are you going over the Chicago River or the I&M Canal? We don't think about rivers. But rivers prior to, the modern, to modern technology, rivers were formidable, scary, natural obstacles. As I tell students, if they don't believe me, look at how many states in the eastern half of the United States 
have those re weird or ridiculously looking lines because of a meandering river system. Look at, for example, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio alone. Our southern borders of those states is because of the Ohio River. From northern Wisconsin all the way down to Louisiana, those states have their configuration because of the Mississippi River. But notice that once you cross the Mississippi River Valley and head west, you no longer have states that are designed anymore because of a river system. Rather, we start getting into the idea of equality. That's the reason why, for example, the Dakotas, Nebraska, and Iowa, and Oklahoma all have roughly the same three degrees of height, four degrees of width, while Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado have larger degrees of width, as does Arizona and New Mexico. And as we head further west, what's impacting the shapes out there is either, is either the prior settlement by the Spanish or because of the Rocky Mountains, which is the reason why Idaho and Montana, Washington and Oregon have the state's shapes that they do. And in terms of California, why do they have that almost like that border from southern Oregon all the way down to southern Arizona? That wasn't determined by the United States. That's the way the Spanish colonized it. If you go to the far northernmost point of California, all the way down to Arizona, it is roughly 215 miles from that line bordering Nevada to the Pacific Ocean. So that, again, was a border that more or less we inherited. So Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s, recognizing that after the American Civil War, a lot of people may want to leave the eastern half of the United States for a variety of reasons, but they weren't going to move unless there was a tangible plan to get them from point A to point B. That's the reason why the legislation for the Transcontinental Railroad was started in the middle of the Civil War, when you th would think at that point we had enough other items to be concerned about or things to take care of at that time. The railroad itself would be a project that would cost in 2010 dollars just over two billion dollars. And it wasn't going to be an easy construction project, not in the least. The problem is that there would be one of two, there would be two major obstacles to allow Americans to lay those two rails four feet, eight and a half inches apart from railhead to railhead or 56 and a half inches apart. And that is the t all the way through to 2021. That is the international width of your major railroads is four feet, eight and a half inches. I do ask you if you want to fact check me on that, please fact check me at your local library or online. Do not take a tape measure and go out to any of your nearest set of railroad tracks. The last thing I want to hear is that a listener was picked off by a train trying to ch uh, fact check me on that. But yes, it's four feet, eight and a half inches or 56 and a half inches. Yes, such a weird number. But that goes all the way back to the Roman Empire in the days of the Roman chariots, that eventually we would also have the same width in our Conestoga wagons. It would also be the international width for automobile production all the way through to the 1950s. Think about the number of movies where you had scenes where young teenage reckless kids had nothing else to do driving mom or dad's car and go over a set of railroad track. And all you need is one kid in that car to say, hey. Doesn't it look like the width of those railroad tracks is the same width as our car? I wonder if we could drive our car down the rails of the railroad tracks. Technically, you can. 
But if you veer over an inch or more in either direction, you're not going anywhere fast as the car will sink down onto the railroad ties themselves and the ballast or rocks. But the first of the two major obstacles wasn't exactly a small item. It was a 3,000 mile long with 90 separate mountain ranges called the Rocky Mountains. With a peak of over 14,000 feet, this, on average, 12,000 wall of granite, a range that is still growing to this day, was definitely going to be a roadblock for this dream of a truly transcontinental railroad, a railroad that could go from the east coast to the west coast to the Mississippi River and eventually the river to the east coast. The problem is that truly there was only one way through them. Every other obstacle before, whether it be uh, a dam that uh, on land, a massive set of trees, a small hill, dynamite, they could blow their way through almost any obstacle. Prior to getting to the Rocky Mountains, those two steel rails, the men working in shifts, could lay six miles a day when they were just simply starting off from the Mississippi River heading west. But once they got to the foothills of the Rocky Mountains and had to blow their way through that granite, they were, let's just say, losing a little bit of distance each day. And they eventually went from being able to lay six miles a day of railroad track to less than 10 inches. The dynamite simply took so long to try to blast its way through the granite. And that's when the Chinese laborers were snickering to themselves, pointing at the Americans futzing with our dynamite and not getting anywhere fast. That's the reason they introduced a substance that's just a hair more powerful than gunpowder. Burning at an instant 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit, 13 times more powerful than gunpowder, would be the substance nitroglycerin. We would nitro our way through the Rocky Mountains, and that would eventually get us back to the average of six miles a day. The second obstacle presented itself, ironically enough, long before the Rocky Mountains even did, and that was the fact that President Abraham Lincoln, despite how many pedestals we have him on, and rightly so, you'll never hear me argue against it, he was starting a federal program that was going to cost billions with money that we simply did not have, being mired down in the eventual cost of a $600 million American Civil War. So the United States essentially was creating a program that was going to be beyond expensive, three over three times what the Civil War would cost, and we had bunny ears. In other words, our pockets were empty. So the government pleaded with the railroad barons to try to take more or less IOUs. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> they were already multi-millionaires at this point. When I say multi-millionaires, I mean newly minted multi-millionaires. Reason being is that the term millionaire itself didn't enter the American dictionary until the 1840s. No, you don't become a millionaire by taking IOUs. You, take, you become millionaires by taking and getting cash in hand. But Lincoln had none. So the men got together, the four owners of the largest railroads that would be working on the project, 
and they ultimately agreed to take another form of compensation. The second most valuable thing after cash, an asset, but an asset that appreciates in value, not depreciates, and that was land. That's the reason why the initial path of the Transcontinental Railroad had so many curves in it. More curves gobbled up more land. And the railroad barons, they just didn't want two, three, or four hundred feet on either side of the railroad tracks. They wanted miles. And I mean miles. 20 miles one way and 20 miles on the other side. Lincoln was astounded at their demand for this much land. And as they pointed out, three million acres out there. What we're going to take is a drop in the bucket. But Lincoln was desperate to get that railroad track connected. So he ultimately agreed. And that is the reason why by 1869, when the project was completed, those four men would own more land than the current size of the state of Texas. One might ask, where is the public cry out? Where's the rage about corporate overreach? But you see, listeners, if the average American sees a tremendous benefit, we are fully willing, just like the federal government or even state governments, to put our heads in the sand or obligingly look the other way simply because we see a gain. What would be that gain of the Transcontinental Railroad? Well, being open to attacks by Native Americans. That risk was all but minimized by a train traveling north of 50 miles an hour. Those river systems would be a thing of the past as the railroads could sail right over them. And trying to get your Conestoga wagon somehow through those Rocky Mountains, just jump on the train and we'll sail through those in hours. And this is the reason why, ladies and gentlemen, the American people looked the other way. Because when the project was done, a journey that at one time took six long, dangerous months now took only six days. Those first two set of railroad tracks that were joined in Promontory Point, Utah on May 10th, 1869, with up until the American Civil War, American World War II, was arguably one of the most famous photographs ever taken. And you can look that up on Google. Just, just All you have to do is type in the date, May 10th, 1869, or you can type in Promontory Point, Utah, whatever, you're going to see the same image, same image. And that's of those two steam engines meeting face-to-face with all the men that are celebrating the victory of a job completed. Most of the photographs, admittedly, are extremely grainy. They're difficult to see. But despite how much help that the Irish had given, despite how much help the Chinese had given, if you could actually look at the ethnicity of every one of the men in those photographs, they are only mainstream white Americans. The foreigners were not allowed to be part of that famous picture taking. The picture that would replace that is arguably to this day still the most widely recognized photograph would be is the raising of the flag on Iwo Jima on February 23rd, 1945, during World War II. So our railroad tracks were connected. Americans now could get out to the West Coast in a matter of days versus a matter of months. Would that be the only set of railroad tracks we would need here in the United States? And that answer, of course, was vehemently it would not be. By 1900, 
the United States would install an additional 30,000 miles of track. That is more than the rest of the world's railroad tracks combined. And a railroad town was born for every eight miles. And that's the reason why these four railroad barons wanted the land. Because the steam engine couldn't go more. The, your, your, it's the most technologically advanced up to that point steam engine could not travel more than eight miles before it would have to have its supplies replenished. No, it didn't go through wood or coal that quickly, but what it did go through was the water. And that's the reason for the water towers in every one of these towns. And of course, as these towns got established, people started moving in, the price of land started going up, and these railroad barons who were already rich to begin with would continue to rake in the money for decades to come. These railroad towns would become a prominent site, a prominent fixture in the area that we call the Old West or Out West. These towns would continue to grow in size after 1869 until a relatively new invention of its day would make these towns ghost towns. That would be in the year 1956. And that's because of the expansion of America's interstate highway system. As people traveled less on train and more by cars, a lot of these once popular, in some cases very large railroad towns, would eventually turn into lawlessness of ghost towns. So again, that's the just an overview of the importance of what became known as the Transcontinental Railroad. What is obviously not being mentioned here, and extremely important for us to consider, is the fact, again, listeners, that the land was not going through territory that was 100% free and clear. Every square mile of those railroad tracks was being laid on land that was occupied by Native Americans. Human beings, again, that go back to the last ice age, that were here living peacefully with thousands, tens of thousands of buffalo for thousands of years before America entered the fray and colonized the area that we call the West. Because of this, the land was going to have to be confiscated. And that's part of the reason why the laying of the Transcontinental Railroad was a bloody ordeal as well as, as, well as a beyond expensive one. So what about these Native Americans? How exactly did we get all of this territory that was once theirs under the belt of the American government? That's what we're going to take a look at in the next podcast when we look at the background of the Native Americans prior to when the Americans arrived, and ultimately how ugly their fate unfortunately would become when the dollar signs were being waved in front of the American government and Americans by lar at large in order to be able to make uh, money and opportunity in those towns that were rising up one after another every eight miles west of the Mississippi River. So in the next podcast, number nine, we'll begin by looking at the Native Americans and the plight, of course, that they suffered, not only then, but as I will bring up, all the way through to modern times, with the conflict still going on as of 2021. We'll also look at the lines of work 
that the Americans attempted to try to engage in in order to make a buck. And we'll look at the reasons why so many Americans came back to the East because of the horrors of what they witnessed out West, stories that very few people in the East Coast would dare to believe. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.